Well, good morning. Good morning. How are we? We survived Texas OU weekend. We are here. You should be proud of yourselves. Pat yourselves on the back. I see you worshiping at home. I understand why you were there, but we are glad that you are here. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and you picked a great week to be here because we are actually wrapping up a sermon series that has been really fun. We really liked preaching this series. It kind of went away that we didn't quite expect. We started this sermon series with this idea about being dedicated, about being committed. We looked out in the world and we saw kind of this gnawing problem that maybe you've heard some blog posts mention or some Instagram folks mention about this idea of infinite choice. That we live in an age where there is infinite choice on infinite levels. No matter what you are looking for, there is a variety of things to choose. And while that's kind of what modern world has worked for, we've worked really hard to make infinite choices available to us, it turns out that they aren't quite working for us in the way that we thought they would. We thought that if we had infinite choice in the world, then somehow our lives would be easier. They would be happier. They would be more fulfilled because we'd finally get what we wanted. And it turns out that that just isn't happening the way that we thought it would 20, 30, 40 years ago. Turns out that infinite choice didn't work the way we thought. And, and actually, it's starting to undo something in us that maybe was more valuable than we thought. And what I'm talking about, of course, is this idea or this virtue of commitment. Commitment is a virtue. It is something that is cultivated in you. It's this stick with itness. No matter if it's the perfect choice, it's the best choice, you stick with something because of who it makes you be by staying and sticking in a relationship, a job, something like this. And that virtue, by and large, over the last 30, 40, 20, 10 years, has started to kind of erode. And with it, we have lost something of ourselves something that mattered. And so we've been talking about this. How do we think about this? How do we reestablish this virtue of commitment? Understandably, it is a Christian virtue. It generally is a religious virtue. So how do we get it back? How do we rebuild it? And we've been learning from a guy from the sixth century named St. Benedict, a Catholic monk who has a lot to teach us and we've been talking about him for the last three weeks, but in case you missed that first sermon, I want to debrief his story a little bit, give you a little bit of history on who Benedict was, because I think it's important in what we have to learn from him. So Benedict was born a few years after the last Roman emperor was disposed. And so he was born into this time of chaos, as he grew up, the institutions around him started to crumble. The age started to have kind of this low-grade anxiety, and when people feel anxious, they start to do crazy things. Morality kind of went out the window. What used to be accepted and norms of society started to kind of dissolve. And when he was a young man, Benedict went to Rome, as a young man does, to kind of experience the world, but what he saw scared him. It was so different than what he expected. He saw chaos and complete collapse in what he thought the good life was. 
and he felt himself being tempted and pulled into this world. And so he left. He left Rome, he ran away, and honestly, he lived in a cave for three years. We don't need to replicate that, but he did live in a cave for three years because he was so convinced that this wasn't working. The way that the world was working is not how we're supposed to live. And so he went to spend time with God in a cave for three years. And over time, people kept hearing about what he was doing, the life he was living. The people outside the world who were anxious and freaking out about how things were not going like they planned, they sought out Benedict and they kept coming to his cave. And they kept coming and they kept coming and they kept coming. So finally, he was like, fine, I will get out of the cave and I will teach you how to do this. And he did. He was asked to be an abbot and he became a monk and he led monasteries and that led to several monasteries. Today, Benedictines are one of the largest orders in the world. And he started teaching people how to live in the world. I'm not saying that we're at the fall of the Roman Empire, although I think lots of people would agree with me on that statement, but I am saying there is something to learn about Benedict's time and ours. There is something eerily familiar about the way that Benedict talked in his biography, talked about the world, that feels really relevant even today. A world where institutions are crumbling, where you don't know who to trust, where there's this low-grade anxiety about what is right and what is wrong, where there's feeling like we can't make enough choices on our own because we don't know what to do. In a world where we look around and think, God, this is not working the way that I thought it was working. That, that feels eerily familiar to the world that we live in today. And so we wanted to look at what Benedict did, what he taught. And specifically, we wanted to look at the vows that he taught his monks to take. All Benedictines to this day take three vows. So the first one is the vow of stability, and this is what Stephen talked about a few weeks ago. It's the idea that you will commit to a monastery, you will stay in one place. All three of these have to do with commitment and cultivating that sense of commitment. The second one is obedience. It has to do with listening. Particularly for the Benedictines, it means that you obey your abbot. That you obey the orders that are given. And the third one, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is the vow of the conversion of life. To talk about that vow... I want to talk to a place where I think Benedict looked when he was getting motivated to write this vow, where he sought inspiration when he was thinking about this vow. So we're going to look at a letter in the New Testament, and I call it a letter, it's not truly a letter. It's a short, short book at the end of the New Testament, written not to a specific community, but in general to a group of Christians to try to teach them how to live. It's called James. And we're going to look at a part of this letter because I think it's really important. But before we do, I need to warn you a little bit about James. James comes from the wisdom tradition. Has anyone ever read Proverbs? Or parts, let's be honest. Have you read parts of Proverbs? Yes? And you know how Proverbs is just like random statements? You're like, well, this doesn't really feel comprehensive. James kind of has that flavor to it. Some pieces make total sense when you're reading through, but then other pieces you're like, huh, 
that feels a little random. And that's because most likely it's a collection of almost like sermon notes, a collection of wisdom that he put together, modeled after the tradition in Proverbs. So it's that same kind of idea. We're gonna read a portion that by and large does make sense all together, but there is some themes that we wanna point out and that's how you should read James. You should look at the themes rather than it's not a logical argument that's being tried to be made, okay? So if you have your phones, you can do James 1. We're starting at verse 21. If you don't, that is totally fine. You can look on the screen and I'm gonna start at verse 21. Here are the words of God. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth, and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, when we're looking at James, we need to look at the themes. And so the first theme that jumps out at me that I think Benedict picked up on is this word, the word. Did you catch that? That the word is planted in you. That idea of the word is really common in the Bible. All the way in the Old Testament, it's common. We have references in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah of this idea of the word being planted in you, being sown into your hearts, being put up in your houses. The idea that there was something that was a part of you that had to do with God, that is a really common idea in the Old Testament. And then it's picked up again in the New Testament and the Gospels, and we have this new understanding of this word logos, or the word, because we get this understanding in John that the word is Jesus, right? The word dwelt among us, this idea that something has to do with God and Jesus. And so we get to this point in James where we start to wonder, well, what is the word? What is it that is planted in us? Here's my best stab at it. The word has to do with God's wisdom for the human life. In other words, it has to do with this idea, because he mentions the law as well, of how we're supposed to live. The word is the very belief in us that we are called for something more and that there are boundaries around how we are supposed to live. And that word, that word that is planted in us, you can either listen to it or you cannot listen to it. But regardless, it is inside of you. It is a part of you. It is planted in you. That is a fundamentally interesting concept and one that James takes because he starts to explain, okay, if the word is planted in you, what does that mean? What do we do with this? And I think there's two things that James is trying to teach us in this passage. Two things about how to abide with the word in us. And the first one is in that first line. It's pretty strong. He says, stay away from moral filth and evil, right? 
pretty overt to the point. But it's also followed up at the very end with that phrase, what is true religion? To honor the orphans and the widows in their distress and also to keep yourself from being polluted in the world. And that's what I wanna talk about, that phrase, polluted in the world. Because I think they have something to do with each other. This idea of staying away from moral filth and evil and the idea of being polluted in the world. I'm gonna go on a little tangent here because I think it's important. There is not a Christianity, let me rephrase that. To be Christian means that you are in conflict with the world. That makes us feel a little uncomfortable, I'm gonna say it again. To be Christian means that you are in conflict with the world. In 2023, that is kind of a revolutionary statement. But since Jesus came down, that has been the case. There is this idea that the world is different than those who lead a Christian life. And there have been periods of Christian history where people have taken that too far. They've gone too separate from the world. But the idea that there is something in the world that pulls us in a direction that we're not supposed to go, well, that's very real. That's very real. There is something that is trying to make us not listen to this word inside of us, this word that is planted. There is forces in the world that is pulling us away. And over human history, often we've interpreted this as material things in the world. And certainly there are material things that pull us away from God. But I think more than anything, it's actually the spiritual things that are pulling us away from God now. Can I give you a very small example from my own life? And this is super embarrassing, so I'm just going to put this out here. Yesterday, what, I, I am the um, mother of three children under seven, so what do you think we were doing yesterday? Soccer games and birthday parties. That's all we do on Saturdays, right? Soccer games and birthday parties. So we went to the soccer game, and immediately in me, I started this narrative in my head of, oh my gosh, I don't know if this team is like good for, good for my first grader because like he needs to be learning skills and he needs, to, what the heck? I have a first grader. I have a first grader who is definitely not gonna be playing soccer beyond this level. And in my head, in my head, I already have the narratives of the world. And that is minor, that is a minor narrative, but it is there. And let me tell you, Keep listening to that narrative, that one that achievement matters, that your kids are a reflection of you, that you can control their success. That narrative, that narrative is riskier than anything material in this world that can pull me away from God. I can convince myself that, oh, it's fine. I, I abstain from a lot of things. I'm good. I'm holy. But then you get those sneaky ones that are so prevalent here and we just follow them enough that we stop remembering that part of our work is to keep ourselves from being polluted from the world. And not because the world is wholly evil, but because it does not have our good in mind. Because our ultimate end is not here in this world. That's the first thing I think James wants us to do about the word being planted in us. Be on guard 
about the powers and narratives in the world, the spiritual things that pull us away from God. But the second, the second is really where I want to plant ourselves, pun intended here. The second is that the word of God should transform you. It should change your life. That's what he says over and over and over again, this idea in James that don't just listen to the word, do what it says. You cannot be a Christian and not lead a Christian life. It is not an intellectual ascent. That is part of it. But to be Christian means to be continually changing your life, oriented around God. I think that's what Benedict means when he says conversion of life. This idea that we must continually convert over and over and over again, convert our finances, not once, but every single year we make budgets, convert how we are at work, not every single year, but every single day we show up, continually converting, continually making that decision to orient our lives around Jesus. Because if we do not, then James says we are deceiving ourselves. We are not the salt and light of the earth. We are not the people that God created us to be. Dare I say, we are not Christian. To live a Christian life is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. And to be in continual, single-minded pursuit of that goal is our only task. That word that is planted in you, it affects everything. It affects how you spend your money, how you show up at work, whether or not you take that work trip or not, whether or not you take that promotion. It affects how much you donate. It affects where you send your kids to school. It affects how many activities you enroll them in. It affects how you talk to your sister. It affects how you treat your parents. It affects what you do at the end of their life when you're caring for them. It affects your priorities. It affects how you parent. It affects every hour of your day if you let it. Conversion is a very real thing that we are not called to once in our life. It is an ongoing process that we commit ourselves to. Paul Wilkes, who's a Benedictine scholar on spirituality and Benedictine spirituality, he says conversion is this. Conversion of life, this vow, is a continuing and unsparing assessment and reassessment of oneself and what is important and valuable in life. It is a commitment to be rigorously honest with yourself and when you can't be inviting others in so they can be rigorously honest with you and reassessing the decisions you make a lot, all the time, almost continuously because those powers of the world, man, they sneak in and they pull you away and you have to reassess again and make sure that your life is oriented towards Christ. And not because that promises you a safe, healthy, wealthy life. It doesn't. 
But what it promises you is an antidote to that question of why isn't this working? Why don't I feel fulfilled? Why don't I feel meaning? What is the point of this? Why am I here? Those questions, the fundamental questions of the human heart, that's what you are after. That's what Christianity gives an answer for. That's the life that you are called to. Now, the question is, as always, how in the world do you do this? I can stand up here all day and tell you that your whole life should be oriented around this, that we are in the process of conversion that is ongoing and lifelong. But how do we do this? I think the answer is actually found in a kind of random historical tidbit that I found while looking this up. So for hundreds of years, um, they translated this last vow, they say it in Latin, as conversio morum, conversio morum. That means like conversion of way of life, morum is way of life, conversion of the way of life, specifically monastic life. In 1912, some translator realized that they had been messing it up for hundreds of years. They had not been saying the vow correctly, that it actually was conversatio morum, that somehow they had missed those few extra letters that really changed the meaning. And this kind of perplexed a lot of people. What the heck does conversatio morum mean? Conversatio is where we get conversation. It's this idea of dialogue, of intimacy and familiarity. And that threw a bunch of monks and orders into kind of this conversation about what did it mean? What does that vow actually mean? And I actually think it gives us the answer of how to convert our life because I think the actual vow that we're trying to take is the vow to have a conversation with God about your life continuously. That is what we call discernment. It's a fancy spiritual word, but it means to bring questions to God in order to receive answers. Those questions about where should I work? What job should I take? Where should I apply to school for my kids? Those kind of questions, that's what you bring to God. That is discernment and that is a conversation. That, where the gray areas of I don't know what I'm supposed to do, that is what we bring to God in conversation. And to end our time together, I'm going to do a little mini lesson on discernment. If you want to know more, you can come take my class. We're doing this all of the fall. But here's how you discern something. First, you need a question. You need a question that is clear to ask to God. What is something that you're deciding? What is something that you have questions on? It can be big or small. What is the question that you want to bring to God? Then you take that question and you actually bring it to God, not just metaphorically, like actually sit there and pray that question to God and ask him to speak. You make space for him to speak. Maybe you journal, maybe you just sit there quietly. You start to notice and orient your whole world around paying attention for an answer to that question. You wait for the spirit to show up. And then, maybe most importantly, you bring that question to other people. There is no discernment just by yourself. It doesn't work that way. A lot of crazy people did a lot of crazy things by discerning God by themselves. Yes, you have to have your community. You have to bring that question literally to your community. And this is why groups are so good and such an easy place to be like, hey, I'm deciding this. Because they can take that question then and bring it back to God. 
and look themselves and then they can report back to you where the spirit has showed up for them and offer you clues and advice. And let me tell you, this works. This works. It has happened in my life several times. I know it has happened in Stephen's life several times. This is how we make choices. We ask a question. We ourselves bring it to God. We check the answer with our community and ask them to check too. That is the process of starting the conversation about your life with God. That is the process of conversion. I'm going to pray for us. Holy Spirit, you are active and working here. You are alive in the questions that we offer you. Lord, we're all making decisions every day. We all are doing things that need to be oriented around you so that we can have the promise of life abundant. Help us know which questions to ask. Help us find the people to ask them with. Guide us in our quest to look different from the world so that we can be the light of the world for you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.